The scripture reading that uh, Pastor Tony's sermon is based off today is from Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 through chapter 4, verse 7. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into, your, into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kimberly. Since Easter, uh, as we move through spring into summer, we've been looking at this letter, Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, which is today's central Turkey. Um, Paul was a church planter. He would create a church, preach the gospel, train some leaders, and he would move on. But he kept in touch with his churches through letters, and that's the bulk of the New Testament. And they would write to him with issues. And um, Galatians, which is probably the first letter that he wrote, and probably actually the f- earliest writing in the New Testament, he is dealing with a particular problem that faced the early church, a challenge. And we've seen in the last uh, three chapters, Paul addressing the challenge. And the challenge was, in the early church, which was predominantly Jewish, The Jewish Christians were saying to the Gentile Christians, Gentile just means non-Jewish, so everybody outside of Israel and Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians were saying to the Gentile Christians, you're not real Christians yet. To be a real Christian, you've got to become Jewish. Because Jesus was a Jewish Messiah, and uh, God gave the law of Moses at Mount Sinai, and real Christians are Jewish Christians. And Paul and he argues this throughout the letter, is adamant. That is not true. All you need to be a Christian is to put your faith in Jesus. Jesus Christ and nothing else. And that's really these first two verses. This is the end of chapter 3. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ plus nothing. Jesus Christ alone. Faith in what he did, faith in what he achieved, faith in his redemption paid on the cross, that's all you need to be a Christian. No Mosaic law, nothing else. And now Paul moves on. He's made that argument for the first three chapters. And now he moves to his central point, in fact, the central point of the letter to the Galatians, really the heart of Paul's gospel. If this is true, so what? 
If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham, Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of this world. But when the set time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. There is the core. Adoption to sonship. It is the charter of freedom for all Christians. It is the center of the gospel. In fact, there are whole ministries built around these verses because understanding sonship, understanding what it means for you personally, means understanding the essence of Christianity. Now, to get there, we need to pick up the threads of Paul's argument again so we can see where he's going and how he gets to sonship. And he does it by linking the great stories of the Bible and the great heroes of the Bible, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus. First, Abraham. Go back to verse 29 there. If you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now we looked at this a few weeks back, a few Sundays back. The promise was a covenantal promise that God made to Abraham. You can find this if you go back to Genesis. After the disaster of the flood and the original sin of man and the falling out of relationship with God, God begins to redeem the world again through Abraham and Abraham's faith. And he makes a promise to Abraham, a covenantal promise, that is an absolute promise, that through him, through his seed, that is, through his descendants, the sons and daughters of Abraham, Jacob, uh, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, who become the 12 tribes of Israel, Israel that becomes the holy nation, Israel from where Jesus comes. So God makes a promise to Abraham and says to him, through your seed, I will bless the world. Through your descendants, through a descendant, all the world will be blessed. And of course, Jesus Christ is that descendant. So you start with Abraham and this covenantal promise. But then you have this intermediate period between Abraham and Jesus. And that's the period of the law, the Mosaic law that God gives to uh, Moses at Mount Sinai and gives to all of Israel that turns them from slaves into a holy nation. You know, the Ten Commandments and the sacrificial laws and the ceremonial laws and the dietary restrictions, all setting Israel apart so that it will become a witness to the world. And that's what Paul talks about when he talks about guardianship. Chapter 4, verse 1. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. 
The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So the Mosaic law, in Paul's mind, is like a guardian. It protects the people of Israel from sin. It shows them the difference between right and wrong. It ultimately shows them the need that they have for a Savior, for a Messiah. And it is there for a period of time, a trusteeship, a guardianship, until the people come of age, that is, until humanity is ready for Jesus. Now verse 3 there is a little obscure. I must admit this. So also when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. What is Paul talking about? Elemental spiritual forces of the world. Well, elemental can mean the same, uh, the Greek word can mean the same as our English word elemental. It can mean basic or simple. And it could be that Paul is just saying there that you learn the basic spirituality, the basic laws of spirituality from the way the world works. I.e. the law, the Mosaic law, teaches us that we need Jesus as a Messiah. Or it could be he's using the word in the sense elemental, referring to fundamental pagan spirits. And so he could be talking to people who grew up in pagan society before they became Christian, i.e. Gentiles. It's not entirely clear which one. Both ideas are there. But his point is clear, that there is this period of time before Jesus where Gentiles and Jews are being prepared, are sort of growing up and being becoming ready for their arrival of the Messiah, for the arrival of Jesus Christ. Abraham points to it. Moses points to it. Verse 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. He's talking about the law of Moses. That we might receive adoption to sonship. So this is just straightforward Christianity. God sent his son. You know, remember John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Basic Christianity. But then he adds on this extraordinary phrase that we might receive adoption to sonship. What does that mean? By the way, it is hard in theology to overstate the significance of this verse and these words. Note it's rooted in the Trinitarian nature of God. God sent his Son. The Christian God is triune, a trinity. Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are in a divine fellowship, a divine relationship, an unlimited relationship of love, so personal and so intimate, that distinct personalities, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, live as one. Three become one. Sustaining each other for all eternity, respecting each other, and living together. And that second person of the Trinity, the Son, is sent by the Father 
into our world, Jesus Christ, the Word becomes flesh, with a purpose, with a mission, to redeem those under the law. That's what he does on the cross. Why? That we might receive adoption to sonship. Sonship is Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, is his relationship with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And so what this is saying is that if Christianity is true, then God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the ones who have created all things, heaven and earth, the entire universe, each one of us, everything that is, who have all the power that exists, omnipotence, all the knowledge that there ever has been or ever will be, omniscience, who are eternal and perfect. That group, those three, have invited us in, have given us through Christ the position that Jesus had in relationship to the Father and the Holy Spirit. Inheritors of all that Jesus Christ had participating in the set of relationships that Jesus Christ had. It's saying that a Christian becomes part of the ultimate in-crowd, creators of all things. You don't get much more of an inner circle than Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that Christians receive all the rights, all the privileges of Jesus Christ's position a second person of the Trinity. That's what sonship is. And that Christians become heirs, that is, inheritors, of everything that Jesus Christ had. His position, his power, everything that he is. That's what it means to be a Christian. It is an extraordinarily broad claim. Everything that is, Now, think about yourself, how you think about being a Christian. How does it compare with this idea of Christianity? If you believed, if I truly believed, that we had all the privileges of Jesus Christ, that we truly had the gift of sonship, that we were adopted, that is legally made sons of God with all these privileges, if you believe that, do you think you'd worry about anything in this world? Do you think there is a single thing that could conceivably happen in the world that would phase you at all? Think about your daily life. If this is true, what have you got to be afraid of? What have you got to fear? What can possibly trouble you if you believe this is true? By the way, one of the powers, one of the, the gifts of this doctrine of sonship is that it allows you to probe where you are spiritually. Because nearly all the problems that Christians have is because they don't fully believe this single truth. That there's some element of it that they doubt. Or there's an alternative that they believe, a lie that they have heard about themselves which contradicts this. And they believe the lie rather than this truth. It is a powerful way of thinking about who you are as a Christian, about analyzing your life and where you are spiritually. 
verse 6, Because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. When you are baptized as a Christian, you receive the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means the Holy Spirit takes up dwelling within you. You become a new creation. A new kind of life with the Spirit as your foundation. And what is that Spirit doing inside you? In your mind, in your body, in your soul? He's constantly whispering, Abba, Father. He's saying, Tony, don't worry. Remember who's your dad. Remember who you are. You are a child of God. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. There is nothing that can touch you. You are a child of God. And as I say, what you believe about that, how that resonates with you, that will determine how you live in this world. So I've got some diagnostic questions for you. By the way, these questions were taken from, there's a whole ministry I said called Sonship. When I started off as a pastor, we all went through this together. It's a big, thick manual you go through every aspect of life. But there are some questions that allow you to examine where you are spiritually. And I'm going to ask you them. You don't have to answer out loud, but think about them. By the way, these are great things to think about as we approach the table, because we're going to confess. A great thing to do in confession is to confess your fears and your doubts and wash yourself clean of that. So as I ask you these diagnostic questions, think about them and store them up. Prepare for confession with them. So there's a difference between somebody who believes they are a child of God, a son, they have this position with the Father, and those that don't. You know, Paul here calls them slaves. You can also think of such people as orphans, those who don't believe that they have a father or a family or a place in the world. And it changes how you think about basic issues of Christianity. What do you think about grace? A Christian, a child of God, a son, thinks that grace is God's unmerited gift Something given by God to renew our lives. Freely given. Not dependent on us. A slave, an orphan, thinks that you become a Christian by believing in God, but then you have to work hard to stay as a Christian. There's nothing gracious. At best, grace is supplemental help along the way. But it's not a gift, and it's not permanent, and is easily removed. Faith. What is faith? What do you believe faith is? A Christian, a child of God, recognizes faith as a gift. A relationship of thanksgiving to the one who saved us. But for an orphan, faith is always an effort. Every morning, every day... You've got to convince yourself that you are a Christian. To believe without doubting. To do 
and to love enough that God will love you back. Obedience. If you're a slave, if you're an orphan, obedience is hard. Either you're compulsively obedient in order not to get into trouble, or you're compulsively trying to get out of doing what you know you should do. You're either avoiding God by doing the right thing, or you're avoiding God by hiding the things that you don't do. But a child, obedience comes easily. If you love God as your father, there's no compulsion. There's only joy and gratitude. The opportunity to please your loving father. The one who saved me. There's a gratitude in obedience. How do you deal with others? A child of God can be completely open and transparent with the good and the bad because ultimately the opinion of the world, of everybody else in the world, does not matter. Only God's opinion counts and he loves me. And so you don't have to put up a front. You can be transparent. You don't have to fake it. You don't have to hide You don't have to be worried about being found out. The only one who knows everything there is has already said, I love you. But if you don't believe that, if if you live like an orphan, like a slave, then it's all about hiding. It's all about pretending everything is good, whereas inside it's not. It's about evading intimacy because you might be found out. It's about avoiding mistakes, or if you make a mistake, blaming somebody else, gossiping, point to other people as worse than you are. What is your social life like? If your social life is an orphan's social life, then this hiding, this lack of transparency, leads to isolation or alienation, even when you're surrounded with people. Because either you trust way too much in an an idolatrous way, or... You don't trust anybody. There's too much at stake, your sense of worth and well-being. But a Christian who knows they're loved by God can be completely open. There's no wasted relationship. You can offer yourself to those who are high and mighty and not feel belittled because God loves you. And you can spend time with those who are very humble because you know deep down that is only God's grace that allows you to be in relationship at all. How do you behave when you're by yourself? This is the great test, by the way. When nobody is looking, when nobody is around, what do you do with your time and your energy? Of course, for a Christian, there is no such thing as totally alone because God is always there. And if you are at peace with that, his presence, if he is your joy and your purpose, then when you're alone, you're just the way you are when you're around people. There's an integrity about you. You don't have big, dark secrets to hide. But if you're a slave or an orphan, then there are things about you that you won't share with anybody, that you only do in absolute privacy when you get away from others when nobody's watching. It doesn't come naturally to you to do the right thing. 
Finally, how do you deal with suffering, with trouble, with setbacks in your life? If you're a slave, if you're an orphan, if you are alone in this cold universe, then troubles lead you to despair. Troubles are God paying you back, punishing you. There is no nothing to look forward to in tragedy. It's just suffering, meaningless. But if you're a child of God, if you trust that God, the creator of all things, the one who has all the power that is, you can trust that he's not going to put anything in your life that's going to destroy you. You can trust that it has a purpose. It has a meaning. That he is up to something that you don't understand, but you can trust him anyway. And so there's no despair. You know that you deserve far worse than you'll ever get. You can even find joy and delight in suffering if you truly believe that God's on your side. Do you see the difference between those two points of view? It all comes down to what you believe about who you are in relationship with God. Are you alone in this world? Are you an, an orphan? Or are you a child of God? Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Do you believe that? Last week, I was on um, a retreat, a silent retreat, uh, down in Morristown at a Jesuit retreat center. And uh, the Jesuits have this whole spirituality based on the idea of silence. It's very biblical. It is based on the idea that within us is the Holy Spirit. Except we can't hear the Holy Spirit because our lives are so busy and noisy and filled with events and Netflix and the internet and messaging and everything else that clutters our minds. All our hopes and worries, all the stuff that buzzes around in our heads. And so Jesuit monks go on these silent retreats periodically. And the idea is just to be still and to listen for God's voice. And my experience is it takes about three or four days to be still. You remember all the things that you should have done and all the emails you should have done and the, the birthdays that you forgot and uh, the church meetings that you need to prepare for and the sermons that are coming and it's just... And then you wake up the first morning and it's a little quieter. And the second morning it's a little quieter too. And if you begin each day with Scripture, with the promises of God, it's as if as the world gets quieter, God's presence doesn't get loud, but becomes more dominating, more significant. And the whole idea of the silent retreat is to get to what they call the ground of being, the foundation of who you are. Who you are in yourself, the personal part of yourself that is in relationship with God. And if, as the Bible says, 
the Holy Spirit is right there. When you get to that place, you meet God. You can hear his voice, especially if you're reading scripture at the same time. And that becomes the base note. The base note of your day, the base note of your existence. And what is God saying there? God can say many things. But we're told here that one of the things that is being said, right in the very center of our hearts, every moment, every second, every minute, every hour, every day, the Holy Spirit is saying, Abba, Father. Is reminding us who we are. Not orphans. Not adrift in a chaotic, confusing universe that doesn't amount to anything. But we are children of God. Created with a purpose. Beloved. That our lives have meaning. And that whatever else is happening... Underneath it all is this foundation. And my experience has been, if you can find that foundation periodically, you don't have to do it every day, but you should do it sometimes, all the other stuff will come crowding in afterwards when you you know, come out of your retreat or your time of prayer. But underneath it all will be this confidence. You know, the Bible talks about peace that surpasses all understanding. I believe that's what it is. Because if you know that you're a child of God, there is nothing in this world to be afraid of. You can be at peace. You're not an orphan. You are not adrift in an alienating place. You are at home. You are loved. Your life is unfolding as it should. Everything is just the way it's meant to be. Imagine if you believe that. Everything is just the way it's meant to be. How much pressure that takes off. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. But he didn't just do that. Didn't just spend the spirit. He sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. What does that mean? Well, the essential teaching here is that we are being invited into a love affair. The love affair of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From all eternity, lovers, together. That's what we're being invited into. That's what we are part of. But of course, we don't feel that way all the time. We feel separated. Have you ever had an argument with somebody that you love? And you feel angry? And you storm off? And you know that they're wrong and you're right? It is absolutely and completely obvious. And all they have to do is admit it and everything will be fine. And there you are, self-righteous and all alone. But to be right and to be alone is still to be alone. It is a terrible thing for lovers to be separated. All that needs 
is that somebody step off that high horse and say, sorry, you may be completely right. You may be justified, and the other person might be completely wrong. But deep down, you know that it is a deeper wrong for lovers to be separated. There is nobody more miserable and lonely and alienated and destitute and unhappy than a lover who is alone, no matter how right they are. Someone has to forgive. Someone has to melt and humble themselves and take the blame, even if they are in the right. Someone has to say, I love you, and that is more important than any argument that is between us. Does that sound like anybody? That's what Jesus did. Second person of the Trinity. Perfect in holiness. Lived a perfect life. Blameless. Beloved of God. And yet, he saw humanity, each one of us, alienated and alone. Miserable and destitute. In the wrong. But the love of God, as he demonstrates in Jesus, is bigger than that wrong. And he came into the world, and he took the blame on himself, even though he was perfect. And he took the alienation from God on himself, and he paid the price of that separation, even unto death. The Spirit is the one that says, Abba, Father all the time, but it is Jesus Christ who melts our heart. It is what he did that shows us the depths of God's love. It is Jesus who shows us the gospel. And so when you put the two together, then you have Christianity. What does the gospel say to you? What do these words say to you? They speak with the authority of God whose sacrifice of his son shows his commitment. And they say to each of us, to each one of us in this room, you are my beloved. I love you. With you I am well pleased. You belong to me, and I am yours. We will never be separated. And now you have a home. You will never be alone. You'll never be abandoned. You'll never be an orphan, ever. You're my beloved, and you have a place in my heart forever. That's what Paul is telling us here. Jesus Christ reveals it. The Holy Spirit, every moment, reminds us of it. We just have to believe it and live with that as the foundation of our life, and we'll be transformed. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ's sacrifice, your beloved Son. And we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who reminds us constantly who we really are. Lord, may these truths shape our life, become the foundation of our life, be the very center of who we are forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.